Thank you so much, Janice. Wasn't that lovely? If you tuned in tonight, it was worth just hearing that if you didn't hear anything else. Thank you so much to Janice and David and Parker and Catherine and Dan and Jody uh, for leading us in, in beautiful worship tonight. Well, we're not going to talk about the coronavirus tonight. We did that this morning. We're going to talk about Corinth. So there's something about our lives right now that yearn for normalcy and routine and a pattern to be followed. And so we've been going through the Acts of the Apostles on Sunday evening. And so if you were here last Sunday night, I, I remember saying, do not, take, do not take for granted the opportunity you have to be in this room. And I, I felt like this is where we would be tonight, that you would be on the radio. And so we're here tonight and you're listening by way of radio and we'll continue out through our Acts study. And we find ourselves tonight, open up a Bible there to Acts chapter 18, follow along. We'll also be looking at a few passages probably in 1 Corinthians. So you'll just remember Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, that all those are right there in order to be sure. Well, we're still on Paul's second missionary journey. And now we find ourselves, he last week gave that sermon at Athens and some of the philosophers, Stoics and Epicurus, the Curians, they were, their curiosity was piqued. Some believed, but others were laughing at the idea of the resurrection. Well, let's begin in Acts 18, verses 1 through 4. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. Now, Paul, we're, we're going to find out tonight, spends 18 months, a year and a half in Corinth. We find that out in, in verse 11. And yet the coverage is ever so brief. We also have the letters 1st and 2nd Corinthians, so we know a little bit more about Paul's relationship with this church that he begins in Corinth. But the coverage here is briefer than the coverage when he was in Macedonia and Philippi. He was there only a few months, and yet there's a lot of attention given to that. But we can piece together some ideas from 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and we know that there were times, though Paul started this church, that he had a stormy relationship with this church because some enemies came into the church after Paul had left. Corinth as a city was the most cosmopolitan in all of Greece. It was the largest city in all of Greece. It was a major center of commerce, and it's an isthmus, so it has the rare opportunity to have a port on both sides. On the west, there's a port that connects to the Adriatic Sea, and on the east, there's a port that connects to the Aegean Sea. It was just three and a half miles at the most narrow point. In fact, Nero started digging out a canal, making it so much easier for ships to go through than to go around, but he never got it completed. But since it was just three and a half miles and it was so far around, they still found it cheaper often to pull the ship up to one of the ports 
unload all the cargo, put it on carts, drag it across the three and a half miles, and reload it on another ship at the other port. And therefore, though there wasn't a canal, they just took the goods by land and loaded them from one ship to another, from the Adriatic to the Aegean, or from the Aegean to the Adriatic to keep from having to sail around in dangerous waters. Well, just like Athens, where we were last week, the religion of the Corinthians seems to be the traditional Greek gods. The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, commanded the city from the Acrocorinth. It was about 1,900 feet tall, this hill. And the temple was there on top of the hill, Acrocorinth, Upper Corinth. It sort of dominated the city, this temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Well, within the city walls at the marketplace, the Agora, there was a, a temple to Apollo, the patron god of the city, the god of the, the sun. Worship of God himself, Yahweh, the god of the Jews, however, was present in the city even before Paul's time because when he gets there, he finds a Jewish settlement and a synagogue, and that's where Paul, as usual, begins he begins his message. Now, Corinth, he's leaving from Athens where he talked before the council. It is 50 miles from Athens to Corinth, so he didn't have too far to travel, almost due west. When he gets there, he meets a Jewish couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. The couple is mentioned in several of Paul's letters. He was close to them, Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Timothy 4. Now, Paul and Luke, whether Paul is in his letters or Luke here in Acts, always mentions them together. You know some married couples like that. If you mention Aquila, you got to mention Priscilla. If you mention Priscilla, you got to mention Aquila. They are always together. They go hand in hand. Now, Paul call, uh, Luke calls her here by the name of uh, Priscilla. We have Aquila, a native of Pontius, and his wife, Priscilla. Priscilla is the diminutive name. Paul usually calls her Prisca, the more formal name. So Priscilla is Howie, Prisca is Howard. One is more formal than the other. Paul addresses her by the formal name, and Luke addresses her by the diminutive name, uh, Priscilla, when he speaks of her. Well, this is so important. Verse 2. You know, we don't have a lot of pegs to hang our hat on when it comes to actually the dating of the ministry of Paul throughout all of his missionary trips. But I want you to notice very carefully in verse 2 that notice why are Aquila and Priscilla, why are they there? Well, they had to leave Italy, that is, they had to leave Rome because Claudius, the emperor, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them. Well, now, Luke doesn't tell us all that we know. We know some, something else about this. In Suetonius, an ancient Roman historian, in his work, The Life of Claudius, Suetonius tells us that Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome because they were bickering over one by the name of Crestus. Now, right there we have 
a peg to hang our hat on in regard to dating. This happens, another church historian tells us, Erosius in A.D. 49 to maybe early 50. So it's a remarkable piece that Suetonius gives us to tell us that there in the capital, city of the Roman Empire, there in Rome, the Jews are bickering. Now, what are they fighting about? They're fighting about a fellow by the name of Crestus. Who is that? Christ. So the Jews are arguing already whether or not this Crestus, whether or not Jesus is the Christ. And whatever the bickering the Jews were doing, you can see the ease of and the physicality of the anger of the Jews against the Christian movement here in Acts. Well, it had already been to Rome. And so, well, Claudius, the emperor, was tired of this bickering. And so he just said, out with all of you. This is some sort of religious argument amongst the Jews. And I don't know the answer. And I just want you all to get out of Rome. And so Claudius forced the Jews to leave the capital city. And therefore we know that around AD 49, or maybe early 50, that Paul arrives. Now when he gets there, Aquila and Priscilla are already there. They had to get there first. They get kicked out of Rome. So it's sometime in the middle of A.D. 49 that Paul arrives to the city of Corinth. That is an important uh, historical marker for all the dating we have concerning Paul's ministries. Well, Paul goes to work with them. We learn that he is of the same trade as Aquila and Priscilla. And that trade is leather worker. Your translation may say tent maker, probably more broadly translated leather worker. It's probably more repairing tents than it is just making tents. Maybe like the leather worker or the cobbler works on leather here in our own community. And so they're Christians, they're believers, they're in the same business, they got customers, maybe more than they can do. They invite Paul, I'm sure he's good at his craft, to come and join them there in the tent making. Well, on, on the Sabbath, he quit tent making and he went to the synagogue. This is always Paul's modus operandi, his method of operation. He goes to the synagogue first and he tries to persuade the Jews in the synagogue and the Gentiles or the God-fearers, the Greeks, that this one rabbi by the name of Jesus is the Christ. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy, they had been left in Macedonia, remember, they catch up with Paul. Then Paul, verse 5, begins devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I'll tell you what I think happened here. I think that Lydia, the seller of purple, sent an offering. And when the offering arrived, he could quit making tents, and therefore he didn't have to witness simply on the Sabbath. He was able, therefore, after that, to do it every single day. In fact, Paul mentions working to support himself in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians 2, or 2 Corinthians 11. But he reminds the Ephesian elders that when he was in Ephesus, he supported himself and his co-workers with the labor of his own hands. But there are times when he received the offering, he was able to cease to be bivocational and commit himself totally 
to the ministry. So here comes Silas and Timothy. They're living, leaving Macedonia. They're bringing an offering from Lydia. And so Paul can begin spending every day convincing people that Jesus was. Look at the end of verse 5. That's the message. Jesus was the Christ. Well, in verse 6, let's read 6 and 8. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean, for now I shall go to the Gentiles. When he departed from there, he went to the house of a certain man by the name of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus the leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they were believing and were being baptized. Well, he receives that offering. He's able to witness every single day. And in the process of his witnessing, the Jews begin to believe. The other Jews get jealous. and Therefore, he's kicked out of the synagogue and he goes to a Gentile, a God-fearer by the name of Titius Justus. Now, he's probably one of those mentioned earlier in verse 4, one of those Greeks in verse 4, Jews and Greeks. Titius Justus is probably one of those Greeks in verse 4. He probably keeps living with the tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla. But he goes just next door and begins a church. Can you imagine? He walks across the street from the synagogue, sets up camp. The Jews are believing, so the Jews get even more angry because the Jews who call him the Christ, they leave the synagogue. They go over to the house that's next to the synagogue. And notice what even happens. Crispus believes. The leader of the synagogue actually himself believes, verse 8. And Crispus, a leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. There we learn that Crispus was one who believe. Now in 1 Corinthians, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. Paul is telling the Corinthians who are arguing, I don't remember who I baptized. Well, I didn't bapti baptize anybody except Crispus and Gaius. You see the name? There he is. So Crispus in 1 Corinthians is one of the few that Paul actually baptized himself, and he was the leader of the synagogue, and he believed. And when Crispus went over to the house church, left the synagogue, more Jews came, and that angered the Jews all the more. In the other cities we've been through, the Jews get angry you remember in Thessalonica, they hire a mob from the marketplace and they run him out of town as that's what's going to happen in Corinth. In fact, up until now in Acts, Paul has not had any ministry more than a few months because every time the Jews start believing and the Greeks start believing, the Jews get jealous. They upset the city officials. They hire thugs from the mob. They begin to beat up Paul and Paul's companions, and so we can't expect Paul will be here very long either, or can we? We have an assuring vision in verses 9 through 11. Look there. And the Lord said to Paul in, a night, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not, do not be silent. Paul's probably thinking in his mind up to this point, I'm about to be run out of town again like I'm always run out of town. But now there's a vision from the Lord, and the Lord says, No, you're going to be here a while, for I'm with you. 
No man will attack you in order to harm you. I love the end of verse 10. I've got a lot of people in this city, says the Lord. Don't worry, Paul. I've got friends all over this city. I'll hide you when I need to hide you. I'll protect you when I need to protect you. I've got the army there ready to take care of you. And so we find here this vision that gives him the confidence that no harm will come to him. In verses 12 through 17, we have the accusation before Gallio. Look what happens in verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, the neat thing about chapter 18 of Acts is you have two of the main chronological markers in the ministry of Paul. We already know that he couldn't have gotten to Corinth before the middle of AD 49 because that's when Claudius kicked Aquila and Priscilla out of Rome. Well, now we have a dating for Gallio. They take him before Gallio. Well, Gallio came in either in AD 51 or AD 52, so that matches up this 18-month ministry beginning sometime around the end of AD 49. The term is only a two-year term for Gallio, so he's out at least by 54 at the latest. So I'm going to guess that sometime around 50 to 52, tighten the window. In those two years, those 24 months, we have the 18-month ministry of Paul. It's right there on one side or the other of that time. Well, what does Gallio think? They bring Paul before him, saying, verse 13, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Paul was about to give his defense. Sometimes you'd rather do anything than hear a sermon from Paul. They, Gallio said, man, I don't even want to hear it. I'm done. You're free. Don't worry about it. Paul might could be long-winded. Well, we know he's long-winded. We're going to see an ax that he preaches well, late until midnight, and a boy falls out the window and dies. Now, Gallio's thinking, if I let Paul get started with this sermon, we may be here for a while. He says, what if I just call it good and send you home? Will you be okay with that, Paul? I think that's what happens here. What we know here is this. Gallio is a Roman. He sees the Jews fighting again, and he says, man, I'm not going to mess with that. Claudius didn't mess with that. Look what he says in verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names of your own law, what's that name? What's that word? Christ, Messiah. If there are questions about words or names in your own law, you look after it yourselves, verse 15. I am not willing to be a judge of these matters. This is in over my head, says Gallio. I don't know who the Christ and Messiah is. I don't even know what that means. Are you kidding me? If you guys can't work it out, I can't work it out with you. He drove them away from the judgment seat. Now notice the Roman authority is driving the Jews. That's harsh language there. And they took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, to another leader of the synagogue, and began beating him. In front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about these things. Well, no, poor old Sosthenes, it's hard to know why he was beaten. But if you take him as being on the pro-Jewish side, then he had taken Paul to get a beating. And instead of getting Paul a beating, he got the beating. 
So Gallio says, get out of here. And he starts beating the Jews who bothered him so they wouldn't come back with their Jewish troubles. Now, more interestingly than that, I don't know how common the name Sosthenes is, but I, I think it's probably likely that in, in one of the Corinthian letters, it is written by Paul and whom Sosthenes, my brother. So this second leader of the synagogue probably believes in Christ as well. And so he took Paul's beating, and then he becomes Paul's brother, and then he assists Paul in actually the writing of one of the Corinthian letters. So, so powerful that Sosthenes and would be a co-author of what we call 1 Corinthians. So Sosthenes, my brother. Well, in verses 18 through 22, we have him making his way back to Antioch to finish up the second missionary journey. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Now, something just happened. Are you a careful reader? Did you notice what just happened? Yep, we had a flip there, didn't we? Now, look back at, look back at uh, chapter 18, verse 2. There we have a Jew named Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. When we get to verse 18, we have now Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, I believe from here on out, we'll see as we finish out Acts, but I believe from here on out in the mentioning in Acts, Priscilla's name comes first. Priscilla was a strong lady, and so Luke recognizes that, and now all of a sudden he switched from talking about Aquila and Priscilla, and now it's Priscilla and Aquila. Sometimes one makes those subconscious subtleties when one is writing, and perhaps Luke is telling us something about our dear, Paul would call her Prisca, Luke and I would call her Priscilla. Our dear Priscilla, that she has a strong personality. And Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, what is that? All of a sudden, we get told about Paul stopping by the barber shop. What in the world is that about? What probably is happening here, Paul has made a Nazarite vow. If you were a Jew and made a Nazarite vow, it was a pledge to not do three things until a certain time. Now, you remember somebody in the Old Testament that had a Nazarite vow. He had long hair, and his hair was his strength, and his name was Samson. Well, Paul, I believe when he had that vision that you can be here for a long time, and I got a lot of people in the city, I think Paul said, Lord, if you'll keep me safe, I'll make a Nazarite vow. And one ends the Nazarite vow by offering sacrifices, and that's, that's what he does here. The three things you couldn't do is you couldn't touch anything, anything that was dead. You were not to partake of any alcoholic, alcoholic beverage, and you were not to have your hair cut. So now that he's left Corinth, and now that he's safe, he's finished with his Nazarite vow, and he gets his hair cut because his vow is over. It does tell us that Paul is altogether still very, very Jewish in, in all of his ways. So when he gets there, he gets his, he gets his hair cut. And notice what happens as we continue. Verse 19, when they come to Ephesus... He left them there. Now, who's he leaving Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila. And he left them there. Now, he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. 
Now, the, the, the Ephesian Jews are going to say to him, what, man, stay with us. We like this. Tell us about this rabbi Jesus. They ask him to stay a little bit longer, verse 20. But he said, by taking leave of them, saying, I'll return to you again. Didn't we see these words this morning? If God wills. Aren't we learning that language again with what we're enduring as a community, as a church? Paul says, my plans don't mean anything. If God wills, I'll be back. And he sets sail from Ephesus. He lands at Caesarea, the port city close to Jerusalem. He greets the church. Well, which church is he greeting here? Most likely, he's greeting the Jerusalem church and reporting what's taken place. And then one always leaves Jerusalem and goes, which direction? Down. He goes down to Antioch, the church that has sent him on his missionary journeys and reports to the church at Antioch, which has a lot of Gentiles in it, about how the Gentiles had believed in the city of Corinth. Verse 23, we begin our third missionary journey. And notice verse 23, and having spent some time there at Antioch, he departed and passed successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia and strengthening all the disciples. Now, he told the Ephesians, if the Lord wills, I'll return. He wanted this, the third missionary journey, the second journey, really the first missionary journey is most like a journey where you don't stay anywhere very long. The second one we just learned, he was in the city of Corinth for how long? A year and a half. Now, on the third missionary journey, he is in Ephesus for three years. Doesn't sound much like a journey, does it? It's a, a sojourning. It's a staying. And so he plans to go to Ephesus, and the quickest way to get to Ephesus would be by boat. But instead, he goes by land. This is a thousand-mile journey by land. Now, you think about that. I am a native of South Carolina, which is 1,200 and something odd miles from here. I can't imagine having to walk to Georgia. Could you imagine that? But what it allowed him to do was to go back and strengthen all the churches on his way. Notice he goes through the Galatian region. The churches are the churches in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and all those churches he had started. He was not a hit and run kind of missionary. He was going back and doing discipleship and strengthening them as he went. We're introduced to an interesting character in verse 24. Verse 24, we learn about a certain Jew by the name of Apollos, an Alexandrian, he's from Egypt by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. Now, this is our first introduction to Apollos. Now, Apollos is important in regard to the city of Corinth because he's going to end up in Corinth. You remember when the Corinthian church was so divided that some said, man, we follow Paul. And others said, we follow Apollos. And others said, we follow Peter. And others said, we follow the Christ. There were four schisms or segments to the Corinthian church. Now, Apollos was a gifted speaker. Paul, probably not so much. Paul seems to be powerful with the pen. His presence not as powerful, perhaps, as that of Apollos. There's a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth. And Luke tells you first, he's a good preacher. He's an eloquent man. He is persuasive. He came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures. He knows his Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This Apollos, by the way, he and Paul 
Paul saw it as working together. I planted in what? Apollos watered and God gave the increase. So Paul never saw himself in competition with Apollos. He was fervent in the spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately these things concerning the Jews, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now, Apollos is described as learned and powerful, eloquent. He's an impressive character. He's a Christian, but he only knows about the baptism of John the baptizer. This is probably a good indication that Apollos was a follower of John the Baptist. And he learned that this rabbi by the name of Jesus was the Christ, but he hadn't learned that the baptism of John was insufficient and needed to be baptized in the Christ. The baptism of John was a baptism simply to repent of sins. It is only the baptism of Jesus that says, I participate with him, I'm buried with him, and I rise with him. And so there he is, not having full knowledge, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, oh, I'm holding true so far, there they are again, Priscilla's first, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, hey, Apollos, come over here. I think they did this in private. He was a great speaker. He was a learned man. He was capable, but he just hadn't been told about the new baptism. They took him aside. That means took him to their house probably and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, so Priscilla and Aquila, and I got the notion that Priscilla did most of the talking at this point, she straightened Apollos out and told him that he needed to be baptized in Christ and quit preaching that baptism of John the Baptist. And therefore, in fact, they share with him so much that he wants to go, notice, to Achaia. Well, what's Achaia? What's the big city in Achaia we just visited there? It's Corinth. He wants to go to Corinth. And the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Well, Priscilla and Aquila instruct Apollos. He wants to go to Corinth. The brethren encourage him. And then wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Now, I want you to notice what's happening. The members of one church are writing a letter to recommend the reception as a member of another church. Do you see what's happening? Now, this is old Baptist language, but when we say we receive someone by letter, here it is. It's throughout the New Testament. In fact, Paul does it for Phoebe. Do you remember that? Writes a letter. So what they're saying to the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus is saying, hey, he's a good guy. He's a good preacher. We endorse him. Give him the pulpit. Let him preach. And they do. And he's powerful. And he does well. So there you know the history of the Baptist church letter. It goes all the way back to Acts chapter 18. He wanted to go across to Corinth. The brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he helped greatly those who believed through grace. For he powerfully, how was he described earlier? As smart and powerful. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. 
demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Apollos knew his Old Testament, and he had now learned more fully about Christ. And he matched up the events in the life of our Lord with the prophets, with the writings, with the Torah, convincing them that this rabbi by the name of Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that what Paul did? He went every Sabbath to try to convince the Jews that this Jesus was the Christ. And what is the church to be busy doing today? To persuade men and women that Jesus is the Christ. Now, apparently, Apollos was a very gifted debater. Paul, a very gifted writer. So between the two, they worked the city of Corinth. Paul never saw himself in competition with Apollos. He said, man, I planned the church in Corinth. Apollos came, by, uh, came after and he watered it. But it is God who ultimately always gives the increase. Convincing others that Jesus is the Christ. In our community today, men and women are looking for an anchor, something that's solid. Everything else has wilted, rusted, vanished, crashed, except for the fact that Jesus, in the calm weather and the stormy weather, he is still tonight, just as he was when Apollos said it was so. He is still the Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, give us your grace and your peace. And may we awaken tomorrow morning, careful of course, but full of courage. In the name of our Jesus, we pray. Amen.